It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Work makes a man of you. Sex makes a man of you. And that was the one way of becoming a man he was most anxious to try. And he tried. And he tried. And he tried. Now, from the company that brought you Dear John, comes Closely Watch Trains. superior and unique. It shows cinematic ingenuity, comic brilliance, and a charming and poignant comprehension of the psychology of sex. Life went on to say that the scene depicting the seduction of a girl telegrapher is surely one of the great comic erotic sequences in film history.
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also joining us this week is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Good to be here. We kick off Czech-tember with perhaps one of the most easily accessible films of the Czech New Wave, Yuri Menzel's Closely Watched Trains, or if you're in the UK, Closely Observed Trains. The film tells the tale of Milos Verma, a young man who comes from a family of odd characters, including his grandfather, who tried to mesmerize the Nazis as they rolled into town, only to be crushed by a tank. Not wanting to work too hard, Milos has gotten a job working at the local train station. There, he wears a dapper uniform and tries his best to lose his virginity. The film is set against Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia, but maybe, just maybe, the Germans are a stand-in for the communists who controlled Czechoslovakia in 1966, the year of the film's release. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, including talking a lot about the ending specifically. So if you haven't seen Closely Watched Trains, I recommend turning off the podcast and coming back after you've seen it. Now, Sam, when was the first time you saw Closely Watched Trains and what did you think? So the first time I saw it was a couple of years ago because I've been working on this book about World War II and cult film, and I figured that it would be vital to include and was not disappointed. I really, really love this film. I think the first time I saw it, I wasn't expecting it to be humorous in the way that it is. Like all I All I knew about it was that it was a Czech film and it was sort of described to me as a comedy, which is accurate, but not like it, it takes a lot of un- like unexpected approaches, I guess, in a way that I think is wonderful. And Jonathan, how about yourself? Um, I think I first saw it in about 2001. So quite a long time ago, a very different context. And it was one of the few Czech films that was available then. I saw it on videotape in the UK and it was possibly, I was trying to work this out, I think maybe the third Czech film that I'd ever seen. Quite a good introduction to Czech cinema. And I think it's probably many people's first Czech film. And I wouldn't say that I was really blown away by it on a first viewing. I did like it a lot, but I think it was only really as I watched it again and again when I started later on to write about Czech films academically and I realised how much is going on in the movie. I think there's something so offhand and so spontaneous about the movie that it, in a way, kind of washes over you without really... Uh, I think it's easy to, to miss how much is going on there, really. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of tropes that recur, a lot of nice sort of visual motifs that are woven through the film. I think it took a while to really appreciate just how densely layered the film is, really. But I did like it a lot the first time I saw it. And I think, as Sam was saying, I think it uh, what is surprising, what's so disarming is the humour in the film. And I would say also the sort of sensuality of the film. I think there's a sort of a, a really beautiful sort of uh, visual a texture to it film that grew in stature the more that I saw it I think I, I really came to appreciate it the more I saw it and the more I read about it um, a lot of great criticism on the film which I think really helped me also to appreciate just how much is kind of packed in there I saw this one probably 92 or 93 now forgive me for kind of going off track but I went to the University of Michigan and I used to see this guy walking around campus and at first I thought he might have been homeless but then I realized that he was way too well dressed and then I thought he might have been Kurt Vonnegut Jr but then I knew that he wasn't Kurt Vonnegut Jr and I ended up taking this 
film class, uh, Eastern European cinema. And wouldn't you know, that guy who I saw sulking around campus all the time ended up being my professor. And his name is Herbert Eagle. And I didn't realize until much later that Herb Eagle is kind of an authority on Eastern European cinema. So I really lucked out by taking this class with this guy. He was fantastic. And I owe my love of Eastern European cinema directly to Professor Eagle because I had never seen any of the films that he introduced me to. I had never heard of any of the filmmakers that he introduced me to. So I really lucked out that I was able to have him as a professor and that he had met a lot of the filmmakers that he talked about and uh, was able to relay a lot of personal anecdotes about them was fantastic. He was the one that showed me closely watched trains and that was my first exposure to Czech films. And it was, it's the perfect gateway drug in my opinion anyway for that because it, it disarms you by being a comedy, but has that, slow burn it packs that wallop that there is a lot more going on to it and that it can be this bittersweet love story comedy but then have this wartime setting and that it can also be critiquing the communist rule as it's you know filmically critiquing the nazi occupation it's a really smart film and it really, it, it's probably the best introduction. There was a reason why I chose this to be the opening of Czech Timber because if you haven't seen this movie, you really owe it to yourself. And this is a great way for Czech cinema to kind of get under your skin. We've got this amazing pre credit sequence that happens that has a couple parts to it. There's Milos himself coming out and what the actor's name i'm gonna butcher all of these names by the way by the way but vaclav nekar amazing he has got such a terrific face and the way that he comes out to this really kind of ceremonious music and he's not wearing any pants and he's just got this long kind of nightshirt on and gives us amazing like shrug sigh it just sets the tone for everything so well and just that it's his mom dressing him for his first day of work as he tells this story about him and his family. And we have these photos on the wall and it's this amazing like photo montage that's happening. I could watch the pre-credit credit sequence alone over and over again because there's just so much fun. I really wish that somebody could hop in a time machine and convince him to make a sort of follow-up prequel about the hypnotist grandfather. <laughs> it's, that part is, I think that's where I was immediately just kind of sucked into the film because it's so brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I think there's so much going on in that in that sequence, isn't there? Really, I mean, I think that uh, it's doing. Um, it's doing a lot of things at once, I think. And uh, I was—I actually rewatched it, um, and I sort of paid particular attention to that scene when I was kind of preparing for this because I think there's just so many details there. And I think it's doing a few things. I mean, it's incredibly funny and incredibly 
I mean, it's unusual, isn't it, to get that much backstory right at the beginning because you don't even know who Milos is, really. You don't really know who this character is. And I think it's doing a few different things, really, to introduce um, the world of the film and the sensibility. I think that, on the one hand, I mean, it's telling us, you know, what kind of characters we're going to see in the film. I mean, this is really the world of Rabal, who wrote the, uh, the novella, and I mean, this is really, you know, pure sort of Rabal sensibility. I mean, I believe most of those details come from straight from the novella. And um, I think it's telling us that, you know, we're in a world of, in a way, ordinary, but also sort of extraordinary people, you know, these kind of eccentric people who are, they're not really the kind of movers and shakers, but they're, they, in a way, sort of collide with history in these sort of weird, absurd ways. And I think, like Sam says about the grandfather, the hypnotist, who, you know, believes that he can stop the uh, the Nazi tanks just by the, uh, you know, his own magical powers. I mean, I think that tells us something about the film itself, which I think, you know, does represent this, you know, this this collision, this coming together of these kind of eccentricities of these ordinary people with these sort of bigger historical events and i think it, it's doing a lot really i think to set up that uh, you know the kind of the absurd sort of narrative that we'll see i love how just in that short opening sequence alone it sets up these these sorts of like his the people in his family the men in his family specifically as heroic figures but at the same time they're sort of conning the system or like like you both said all very eccentric and i kind of immediately starts off with that kind of contrast there's this great theme inside of there of not wanting to work or just not working like the that the what was it? The great great grandfather was a soldier, and it sounds like he was attacked by students and ended up getting a, a pension. And he just went and would buy tobacco and rum with it, and then go make fun of the people who were actually working. And then <laughs> they would beat him up at least once a year. And that amazing like medical photo that they show, where it's the guy with the one leg. <laughs> And his father just laying there on his couch and with the, the watch in his hand. And when he hears the train go by, he gets up and looks and then smiles and lays back down. Living the dream. <laughs> yes, he doesn't even go out and bother to go out and watch the train. He's just sort of happy to kind of just look at it on his watch and just observe that other people are working and that it's kind of still going ahead, but he's not involved in it. And yes, it's almost like a kind of mil- militant and laziness, isn't it? I think it is. It's I think. One of the things I love so much about the film is the way it plays with these themes of structure and order. And it kind of shows that even through their extreme laziness, they do have this sort of like pattern that repeats throughout the film in different ways. And it's it's so brilliant. Yes, yes. And I, th- I think uh, going back to that uh, idea that there is a sort of a grandeur to this, um, you know, to these tendencies. I mean, I think that the way that the uh, that prologue is set up is so brilliant because you have that kind of, you know, burst of, you know, very sort of ceremonial sounding music. And, you know, you have the, the way that, uh, you know, the hat is placed on Milos's head. And uh, this is not my own observation. I believe Pete makes this connection. I think he compares it to, uh, is it Henry A? And um, there is a sort of a, it's a sense that it's like a crown, isn't it, that's put on his head. And yet at the same time, it's almost like you're seeing this 
it's like his first day at school and he's, you know, his mother's dressing him and it's going out there to face the world. And, uh, and yet, you know, that, you know, he's come from this line of lazy people. So it's, <laughs> it's playing with that, you know, there's this, this really sort of great kind of pathetic contrast, isn't there, between this, you know, this very sort of ignoble background and this sort of the grandeur of the, uh, you know, the style. I love that you brought up the connection to the hat as almost a sort of crown because there are all these different scenes that involve people talking about their uniforms or mm-hmm. taking them off, putting them on. But the scene when he first tries to have sex, I noticed it particularly this time around. He His hat is still on and it starts mm. to fall off and his girlfriend reaches over and straightens it, even though they're in the bed. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah, this, this was, I mean, Mike mentioned Herbert Eagle, and this is one of the things to which I'm really forever indebted to Herbert Eagle because he wrote a great analysis specifically about the um, the function of Milos's hat throughout the film. And he kind of made this, I mean, it's a brilliant reading, really, because he analysed what happens to Milos when his hat is on and then what happens when his hat is off. And apparently whenever his hat is on, he behaves in a kind of very repressed or sort of conformist way or fails at what he's trying to do. And so I think, you know, it's significant that the sort of sexual encounters that fail are when he has his hat on. And then when his hat is off, he tends to be acting in a more heroic or a more sort of, you know, let's say, more kind of virile or more successful way. So I think there is this whole, this is one of the things that I think it took me maybe a couple of viewings really to, to you know, to sort of start to see. And as I say, I think Herbert Eagle's, you know, analysis really kind of, you know, clarified that for me. But yeah, there's a lot of, as Sam said, there's a lot of things going on throughout the film. I think about hats and uniforms. I mean, you also have the um, the figure of the station master, Lansky, who, you know, he has this uh, uniform that's made for him, you know, in preparation for the day when he will become an inspector. And it's almost like he is going to be like Milos at the beginning. You know, he, he imagines this moment when he will be kind of crowned with this, you know, this, this uniform and this role of the inspector. So I think, yeah, it's sort of a recurrent motif, I think, isn't it? Clothing and hats, different sort of meanings that they have. And there's that really weird line where I forget who says it. One of the Germans says something about how uniforms don't matter and worrying about your uniform should be a concern for peacetime. But of course, he doesn't really mean that. And I had never noticed that really until this particular time that I rewatched it. Yes, yes, yes. I I love that line. I think, yes, it's the um, the Nazi administrator, isn't it? When he, yes, when sort of uh, to uh, ratify the, the agreement between the station and the uh, and the Reich. And I think, yeah, that's a great line, I think, isn't it? There's so much going on there, I think. And it's also echoed again later on in the film, sort of towards the end when you have the, uh, the sort of disciplinary hearing. And again, the station master, you know, sort of dismayed, you know, in fact, mortified at the end is me to find that, you know, he's not got his posh uniform, got this, this outfit that's sort of covered in sort of p- pigeon shit. And again, he's kind of failed to put on the right outfit. Um, there's another of the sort of, you know, uh, Nazi characters who says, you know, you, wouldn't you be better you know, breeding geese or something? And <laughs> it's just funny that that situation sort of occurs, occurs twice, isn't it, really? And poor guy, you know, never is wearing the right outfit. It's so sad. Yeah, I think there's a whole sort of layer of meaning around it. I think on-hand clothes are a kind of a ceremonial, they have a ceremonial function. So I think that would connect them with 
power, I think, and with the ideas of captors, well, you know, they're meant to be serving, you know, the Nazi occupiers. So they're meant to sort of perform this this role as, um, you know, bureaucrats or officials for Nazi power. So to, to that extent, you know, we would link it to repression. But on the other hand, I mean, clothes have kind of, there's a sort of essentiality of clothing and objects in the film, which would link it more to this sort of sensuality and hedonism. So I think, yeah, this is some of the, I think, the sort of complexity of the images, really, of the different motifs. Even that the way that his mother puts on the hat, there's that amazing thing where she puts on the hat and then we cut to him and she's not there anymore. And then we have the pan up on his entire uniform. And that whole idea of her not being there anymore will come back later on when he's looking at a train and all of a sudden there are two Nazis that are behind him. It's like people can disappear and reappear at will. There's this almost like magical realism to this story, which or surrealism, as, as Jonathan would point out in his book, that pervades this film, which I really appreciate. But I love how subtle it's. It doesn't hit you over the head. I mean, it's not. It's not something like earlier. You guys were talking about how this was one of the first check fund. It made me think and try to remember for a minute the first one I saw, which was definitely Valerie in her Week of Wonders, which is so much less grounded in realism than this is. But I love those nods to that sort of surreal quality that feels almost politically subversive, which I'm sure is intentional. Yes, I I think it's an interesting connection, really, because I think for me, Menzel sort of stands sort of somewhere between, I think, what you could say are the two major tendencies, I think, in the Czechoslovak New Wave. I mean, I think one of them was towards, let's say, realism, towards the work of Foreman, which was very much about, you know, improvisation, trying to sort of capture a sense of sort of unmediated reality. And then the other is this much more, this tendency that's much more concerned with artifice and with fantasy. And I think Valeria and A Week of Wonders, obviously, I think typifies that side. And to me, Menzel or especially in this film, I think, stands somewhere in the middle because I think, you know, there is a sense of everydayness, if you like, and yet at the same time, I think there's something magical about the way that uh, he looks at that world. I think there is a sort of an enchantment, even just about very simple things. Uh, One of the things that actually that I noticed watching the film again was towards the end of the film when... um, uh, you have Victoria Fryer, who is the um, fighter who brings the bomb. And just the way that the film shows the bomb is really interesting because I think it must be the most beautiful bomb ever in a, a film. I think the way it's kind of gift wrapped and they it's sort of sensuously portrayed, really. And uh, they do the wrapping and then you see Hubichka, the sort of rather lecherous character. He kind of, he, he, he's sort of touching the insides of the of the bomb. And there's this sort of, I guess, sort of sexual symbolism there. And I think that, to me, I mean, speaks of a sort of a surrealist sensibility. I think it's, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine many films uh, eroticizing a bomb in quite that way. No, that, that use of, I mean, definitely the bomb, but also we have all these shots of like people's thighs in various uniforms, shots of the way that things are set up and sort of ordered in the train station. It reminds me a lot of Barabchik, mm. who 
is, I would say, more overtly surrealist, but just the way it's on these things at certain times, it's you could go back and watch it probably five or six times and just start noticing things. Like, there's so much in there. Yes. Yes, I think that's very true, really. I mean, I mean I, I'd not really thought about Barovchik, but I think that's great. Yeah, I think that's very, uh, very uh, good connection. I think that, that uh, yes, the use of objects um, is very... I think that really links Menzel to a sort of a surrealist sensibility. And uh, as you say, it does take, I think, a couple of viewings maybe to really sort of notice that consciously. And I think there's just something about the, the station, the world of the station, the insides that's very, I think, very enchanting. And it's almost like there is this conspiracy of these little objects. You have that kind of ticker tape machine, don't you, which is sort of pumping out the sort of the ticker tape, often in kind of big mounds of, you get this big mound, these big mounds of white tape. And then you get the clock as well, which is this kind of, almost a kind of an observer of the action. And um, these little sort of tinkling contraptions, I think, lend, they lend this sense of a, it's almost like a kind of erotic conspiracy surrounding the characters, isn't it, I think. And um, I think, yes, yeah, surrealism is definitely a, a point of reference here. And I mean, surrealism was something that I know that Bohemil Prabal, who wrote the the novella, I mean, it's something that he was, I think, quite directly, um, if not involved in, he, he was um, certainly aware of the surrealists and in the sort of post-war period when he was still an underground writer. I mean, he kind of rubbed shoulders with some of the kind of post-war sort of post-surrealist writers and artists in Czechoslovakia. So I think, yeah, definitely there is a sort of a lineage from, from surrealism here. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's one of the more interesting sequences to me as far as the way that it's put together, which doesn't necessarily make linear sense, is the whole idea of the older guy who works at the train station, who is always commenting about the bells of the clock that are at the station. And there's this little sequence in there where the station master's wife is killing a rabbit, and that we see 
the uncle character running across the screen with his hands over his ears. He's very sensitive to sounds and that horrible, horrible noise that the rabbit is making as the wife is kind of beating it into submission. And then cut and he's holding the rabbit and it doesn't necessarily make linear sense whatsoever, but it just works in that whole sequence. And then even he's kind of the, the subject of a joke in there where we see him pulling on this wagon and the handle breaks and we don't see him fall, but instead we watch Hubichka and Milos watch him fall and we get that great close-up of them as their heads follow him over and then cut to him on the ground. It's like a, almost like a, a silent film gag that we have right there in the middle of that. And it's all in that introduction of the station. I'm so glad you brought up that rabbit because much so much like him, I really hate that sound. Uh, it's so horrible. Mm. I think one of the most overtly violent moments in the film. But one of the things I really like is the way that the natural world kind of intrudes on this more ordered world of the train station. I mean, you have all these scenes showing animals or where people are talking about animals, but it's usually in connection to violence. Like there's the, the countess shows up and talks about how she has to sell some bulls to be butchered. The rabbits killed. There's another awful scene where somebody talks about a bull freaking out in a train car. And the way that he dealt with like to calm the bull down was by gouging its eyes out. It's so it's again, so surreal. Yes. And, um, I remember from the novella, there was actually a lot more of that kind of imagery in the novella. There's a lot more imagery of um, sort of abused animals or there's images of animals in cattle trucks and uh, with, I think, kind of a, a, a associations of the Holocaust. And um, there's a sort of a morbidity and, and that to the novella, I think, that's not really as strongly emphasized in the film. And I think... Um, Yes, I think that's true that you get the uh, more of a sense of the kind of just the sort of rural conditions, really, of the station. I think in the film, you know, you have the rabbit, you have the goose as well, don't you? The scene with the station master's uh, wife where she's kind of looks like she's force feeding the goose. And that's kind of another I think, quite unpleasant, but also sort of perversely erotic scene as well, isn't it? And I think, uh, again, I think as with the clothes, I think animals take on various functions don't they because i suppose we come to you know an idea of naturalness an idea of this you know i think an idea of um, a kind of natural anarchy which i guess also characterizes people like hubichka and i think sets them in opposition to this ideal of order doesn't it of, of, as represented by the uh, the nazi uh, administrator absolutely and that goose scene is so effective but again so kind of perverse like you were saying i mean at first i thought she was preparing the goose to slit its throat like to to cook it for dinner but instead it's like she kind of is very sort of phallically forcing food down its throat and making sure that it goes into the stomach during a scene where he's basically asking her to teach him how to have sex it's it's a great scene. Yes, yes. And it's it's sex and death, I think, isn't it, really? It's kind of, there's a recurrent, I think, connection of sex and death throughout the films. And I think animals, the use of animals, I think, is another way to emphasize that connection. And I think sometimes, sometimes I think it's a connection that is, I think, perhaps 
um, it has a sort of an ability to it. If we if we think of that in terms of you know the the final scenes where you know Milos is sexual, um, is successful sexual encounter is kind of what gives him the platform the capital his death. I mean, sometimes it's a positive connection, but at other times I think there is something very perverse. And I think in that sense. I would say also, I mean, to my mind, speaks also to a surrealist sensibility, perhaps more the surrealism of Bataille, as I do like perhaps orthodox surrealism of Breton. It's perhaps more the kind of dissident surrealism, which is all about finding those connections, I guess. Oh, definitely. I I really think I'm glad you brought up Bataille because I, I think it really forms this triangle between sex, death and anarchy or rebellion. Like they mm. sort of kind of feed back into each other in a way that I think makes the ending so much more explosive, but pun intended. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Yes. And I think that's where the, the idea of idleness or laziness comes into it, because I think, you know, Bataille, I guess, was interested in forms of activity that are sort of wasteful. I mean, and I suppose sexuality, I mean, if it's not procreative, I mean, sexuality is wasteful in the sense that it's, you know, it's something that doesn't serve a sort of an immediate, so, you know, not serving any purpose, purposeful um, aim. And I think, you know, these are both qualities that could be linked because they, you know, I think for any totalitarian regime, these are completely anathema because, I mean, this is contrary to the idea that people should, you know, be motivated by a purpose. They should be kind of, you know, take their own desires to serving a big, a greater end. I want to talk a little bit about Zednicek, I believe is the guy's name. The uh, I kind of call him the voice of authority when it comes to the Nazis. I don't know if he's a real Nazi or if he's a local Czech guy who's kind of working for the Nazis. That's kind of the impression that I get. But his appearance, the music that plays when he shows up, and that he's driving this old-timey car down the railroad tracks is amazing. Not as amazing as his exit, by the way, but when he shows up and he just starts talking like he has a criticism for everybody but especially the station master and this whole thing uh jonathan you're talking about the uniforms and just this whole idea of him trying to get the proper uniform for the proper occasion and zednicek uh it definitely lays into him about that and about so many other things and i want to say that this is around the time that we get the whole idea of the map and the the stamps that we're going to get coming back in much greater detail as the story progresses. Yes, um, I, I'm glad you made the point about whether Zednicek is a Czech or a German, because I, I, as I remember in the novella, uh, Rabal clarified that a lot more. And I think that in, in the book, he's described as a Quisling. Which, uh, that was the impression that I got so, watching the film. And I mean, he's he's speaking Czech. And the funny thing is in the book, and sadly, this is not in the film, but he's even gone to the extent of removing the Czech accents from his name to identify more with the, the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hardcore, I think, to change your name, basically, to <laughs> associate with the, the German occupiers. And uh, yeah, I think he's really a fascinating character i mean i think that um, and i i i love the way i think i think it's a really original portrayal of basically i mean he is he is really the the uh, the only really overt villain in the film uh he's played by um Vladimir brodsky who is kind of everywhere really in czech cinema in the 60s and he's usually quite a sort of sympathetic 
presence. And I think that Menzel said, you know, basically, to, you know, to play a villain, you need somebody who is sympathetic. And I, I kind of like that, uh, that he did that. He, he, he took quite a sympathetic actor and made him play this role. And I think that um, he embodies this strange kind of, I mean, horribly sort of perverted idealism. And I think in that sense, I think, um, I think what Mike said in what you said in the introduction about, you know, this being kind of a comment on communism, you know, that you could take this, uh, you know, the, the the representation of Nazism as a kind of commentary on communism. And to me, I mean, Zednicek, I think also evokes as much kind of a communist official as a, a sort of a Nazi. I mean, I think the things he says about the future and about the tide of history, I mean, to me, evoke communism as much as, as Nazism. Definitely. And for me, he he really reminds me of, so there's this whole interesting kind of thread of similar, but kind of different character types for this collaborator figure that run through a lot of Eastern European films in the, in the sixties and seventies, but that are also in films made during world war two, like off the top of my head, uh, Maurice Tourneau, who's Jacques Tourneau's father, made this film called Le Monde du Diable, or I think the English title for some reason is Carnival of Sinners, but it's this fantasy tale, this really subversive fantasy tale where the villain is the devil. Like basically this guy makes a deal with the devil, but the devil is portrayed by this really sympathetic, jovial Frenchman who's a bureaucrat and he dresses the same way Zednicek dresses but sort of more 40 style and he's similarly obsessed with appearances and rules and the kind of rituals of the way that you're supposed to do things probably my favorite Zednicek moment in the whole film is when there's the entrance into his office and Milos comes in, but comes in the wrong way, and he barks at him to leave, and he has to come back and do it all over again, but in the proper way. And I just, I love that a lot of these sort of collaborator types have that sort of obsession with protocol that is often hilarious. And the whole scene is just undercut so beautifully. Again, talking about that music and that very pompous score. And then when he leaves and his car doesn't go forward down the tracks, it ends up backing up. It's the most ridiculous thing that you've ever seen. And it's just so funny to me. Every time that happens, I can't help but laugh out loud because it just looks so silly that he's backing down the tracks with this pompous score happening again. And it's like a brilliant rejoinder to what he said about turn back the tide of history and it's his own car. And I think it's kind of like a nice repost of that idea, isn't it, of, you know, we're making progress, we're going forward. Well, he's not. And uh, just as the armies, I mean, when he's doing the sort of lesson on kind of military strategy, I mean, you know, that these are actually the the uh, withdrawals, aren't they? And he's explaining them as, you know, these these great sort of tactical, you know, tactical um uh, withdrawals and I mean this is going to lead to you know victory and of course you know it's, <laughs> it's complete completely false and uh, you know I think that whole scene is is a brilliant bit of as you say it's sort of subversive and uh, it's often um, I mean this scene as I remember is not in the book actually and I think that this is uh, one of the great contributions of the film I think and of the script of the film and it's often um, 
it's often described as a Schwakian scene. So it's often seen as, um, yeah, very much in the tradition of Hashek and the good soldier Schwake because it represents this this subtle resistance, this passive, or, or not really passive, but this sort of low-key sort of um, insolence, I guess, by the Czech characters, I mean, who basically unravel everything he's saying, but they just do it with one word, just by asking why. They kind of um, completely... Uh, they completely uh, outwit him and, and, and really sort of expose, I think, the, the sort of hollowness of what he's saying. Which to me is fascinating that that shows up more in these later films, which, you know, as, as you mentioned, as both of you have mentioned, are just as much, if not more, about communism than they are about World War II. But it's interesting to me that that kind of sort of insolent resistance shows up here because... In reality, out of all the different resistance groups happening during World War II, the the Czech resistance was some of the most overt and violent. So it's sort of funny how that gets reinterpreted. I mean, they certainly do something violent in this film, but even then it's in this sort of slapdash way. You guys, we mentioned the Countess a little bit before, and... We were talking about, I think we kind of mentioned her legs. We were talking about animals and the horse and uh, just uh, some of the things that she represented. And the one thing that always gets me with her scene is that we see her face, but for the most part, we don't see her face. And there's so much of the concentration on her, her rear her legs, and then the whole thing of Hubichka, uh, who's kind of uh, Milos's mentor, uh, him telling that dream that he had about the Countess, which is really funny to me because it's come shortly after he tells his story about how he had a dream and that he was a, what was it, a cart and he's being pulled by the Countess. And basically, it's like the handle of the cart is pretty much as dick right um but it's come right after the scene where the older guy after he falls and he's been pulling on this cart and kind of the the ring of the cart falls off and that's when he falls so like there's so much phallic imagery that happens in this film just because so much of it has to do with milosh and his desire to lose his virginity but i love that um hubichka story about how he was this cart in his dream I love how the film kind of over and over again makes male desire sort of ridiculous. And I think the the Countess is, at, at least for me, is sort of, at least in, and in the early part of the film, is the kind of gateway to that. Because I think if you, you know, don't know a lot about this particular period in cinema or not a lot about Czech history it would be easy to watch a film like this and assume that it might be kind of misogynistic, especially if you know the sort of general plot outline. But it really has this way of idolizing women and making it seem like women have this power that the sort of incompetent, flustering men around them will never have in a surprising and almost always funny way. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That's, that's a really good uh, point, isn't it? Because as you, as you say, I mean, it could easily be seen as, you know, representing, you know, the sort of lecherous male gaze in this sort of a very kind of unchecked way and uh, unchecked way, sorry, I should say. There is a sense in which, I mean, some of the female characters, I mean, are fantasy figures. But I, I think I would say that that's not necessarily derogatory. I mean, I think that there is a sense in which they do take control of the situation. I think the figure of the Countess, in a way, is is kind of uh, the kind of counterpart to her at the end of the film is Victoria Fryer, the resistance fighter, um, who I think really represents this sort of very assured, sort of, again, kind of older female figure. And, uh, I mean, she's quite sort of... Uh, uh, assertive. I mean, she sort of slaps Hubitka's hand when he sort of fondles the the bomb, and um, I think um, yeah, she she also I think epitomizes this sense of control. And uh, again, I think with even the um, I think she's the uh, telegraphist, isn't she? The the the, the um, uh, figure of uh, Stenka Svata, um, who has her. Um, who's the subject of the stamping. I mean, I think, again, even she sort of takes the initiative in the situation with Hibichka. And that's got to be one of the funniest subplots in the whole film is she basically, th- there's an erotic stamping that where the sort of stamps are used in a really subversive and non-Nazi approved way where the inside of her thighs are stamped and her mother sees it knowing that it means that someone has had sex with her daughter and takes her to all these different judicial hearings. But she doesn't say, the daughter doesn't say anything. She just smiles. And if anyone asks her, gives sort of the most minimal comment possible while also making it abundantly clear that she had a great time and is planning to do this again as soon as possible. <laughs> I, I love that moment as well when she um, is at the sort of disciplinary hearing and she just comes in and she immediately starts stroking Milos's face and I mean it's completely inappropriate in the situation and as you say yes completely blasé and yeah just ready to do it again and yeah and I I think that stamping is so um, I think it's so beautifully woven through the film I think the use of the rubber stamps and I think that's one of the things that I think really made me love the film the more I watched it because you have this kind of in a way this I guess, sort of transference of the way that it's used. I mean, initially they are, you know, these stamps are used to ratify the agreement between the uh, the Nazis and the station. So it has this very sort of official and, and kind of pro-Nazi connotation. And then they're used by Zednicek when he's doing the demonstration of the military strategy. And then you have Hubitschka making this quite lascivious kind of breathing that he does on the stamps before he uses them. And then, of course, 
but ultimately they end up being used in the erotic scene. And it's as though that he, you know, just in the use of this object, he's subverting the kind of power that they have. And I think even in that closing scene with the disciplinary hearing when Zednicek, I mean, he, he's trying to think of, you know, what crime he can, you know, he can charge uh, Hubitschka with. And he decides in the end, you know, this is an abuse of the German language. I mean, it's completely sort of absurd, but in a sense, I mean, there is a certain truth in that because I think there is a debasement of the the function of the stance, which I think is quite knowing. And I think, again, it's sort of a beautiful sort of use of a motif, I think, in this, I think, in this sort of, yeah, in this sort of subversive way. I think it's a beautiful little sort of uh, use of that motif. I was just going to say, I think it works so well because at least to me, the scene is genuinely erotic. It's not this sort Mm -hmm. of slapsticky physical comedy moment. He gets rid of all that bombastic music. He gets rid of these sort of like wider angle shots of the train station. And he focuses on the stamps, Hubichka's hands, her legs. And it's a really beautiful scene. And I, I think if it wasn't, it wouldn't, have that subversive feeling come through as much. It looks so good. And I'm not just saying that Zdenka's bottom looks really good, but I'm talking about the actual cinematography of it. And just that you can see the goose flesh on her behind when he's stamping her just looks so good. I mean, it's such a beautiful looking film. Yes. You've got the sort of chiaroscuro effect as well, haven't you? The lighting, you've got the, and even the sound as well, I think is seductive, isn't it? You've got the chimes of the clock. It gives this, this as, you, as, as Sam said, I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing, it's not playing it for laughs, really. I mean, there is something almost sort of solemn about those clock chimes. It gives it this, this very sort of yeah, seductive and, and sort of sensual quality. And you get the little sort of objects in the, in the in the um in the station room and um yeah i think there is this sense of just you're kind of cocooned in this little sort of erotic world and it's uh yeah i think really beautifully shot i mean i think for me this is what i mean i, I like a lot of menzel's other films i mean i think he's made many fine films but i mean for me i think this sensuality this sort of attention to visual texture i think really makes this film i think for me his his very best one even when she's describing the scene later on during that tribunal, I mean, it's almost like penthouse form or something, the way that she is just completely unapologetic and just going into detail enough to make the men who are there uncomfortable, which I really appreciated. It's so great. <laughs> and the fact that her introduction in almost, <laughs> in almost all of these judicial scenes is her mother makes her turn around her ass. <laughs> And she does it happily and with no embarrassment, which is just, she's one of my favorite characters. (laughs) I I love the look on the faces of one of the guys as well, that he's just kind of, he's just got this look of, I mean, you can't, it's hard to read really whether he's kind of really concentrating or it's just, just this look of kind of just abject kind of longing. It's just such a, and then you've got the guy who's kind of, I think he's been arrested for sort of stealing a chicken or something. And he's like really embarrassed, isn't he? Sort of looking away. <laughs> and then the final one of those scenes where they go into the actual courtroom with judges up on a podium, <laughs> they all get down, there are three of them, and they all get down from their podiums to get a better look. <laughs> <laughs> Like they're trying to read what the stamps actually say. And it just, it's so good. 
Yeah, I, th- I just think it's fascinating that, I mean, this film appeared in 1966. And when I think of British cinema at the time, I mean, British cinema was not that it was not interesting as well, but I, I find it hard to imagine um, that kind of a subplot in a British film. And I, I find it hard to imagine it being taken so um, matter-of-factly and, and with that kind of, I mean, it's it's bawdy, but it's not really sniggering. It's not the kind of sniggering British type embarrassment humour. I mean, there's something very kind of matter of fact about it. Considering this was coming from a regime which, I mean, was, you know, it's considered usually quite sort of puritanical. I mean, I think it's uh, quite striking, really, that they were able to kind of um, to show these things, really. And I think Hubichka really underlines that because he could be seen as, as there are in a lot of British and Italian sex comedies, that sort of lecherous comedic character type, but he's so much more than that in, I think, a really subtle way where he's somebody who sort of epitomizes the male gaze and lusts after every single woman who walks into or past the train station, but he's not just someone who is interested in taking pleasure. He's sort of shown as being someone who's interested in giving it as well, which I found to be unusual, I guess, but refreshing. There's like an imaginative quality to it, isn't it? The use of the stamps. It's not your sort of typical sort of Sid James style lecturist guy. I mean, yes, there is a sense of playfulness. And I think that playfulness to me is key. I think that's what really defines the film as a whole. And I think it's approach to eroticism, what makes it so, so fresh and so seductive. I think that it's playful. And I think that, his first sex scene where he takes this young woman into the office and shuts the door is really subversive because in a subtle way, because when they have sex, they wind up tearing this leather couch that everybody is obsessed with because it's such this, you know, it's really clean and it looks very sort of fancy in kind of a, like you could imagine that the Nazis and the, the officials would love to sit on this couch. Like it's a nice piece of furniture, but it just gets torn in this really like you can't ignore the tear even after they try to repair it. And it's a, it's such an eyesore. <laughs> when it seems like the tear comes at the moment of climax, and I'm not sure if it's Hupichka's moment, but I think it's actually the, the woman's moment of climax, which is kind of nice that it's, the woman doing it rather than the man that it's actually a mark of her pleasure than his which is great and so subversive and there's that amazing moment that you know if people have even heard the the title closely watched trains they probably have this one image in their head of masa on the back of a train leaning over to kiss milos and they're just about to kiss and that's like the image that they use for so much of the the promotional material for it and i love that moment of hubichka kind of cock blocking milos by whistling (laughs) and telling the train to go and when he comes over and stuffs the whistle inside of milos's mouth it's such a nice way to kind of put that button on that joke (laughs) it's a good one and yeah hubichka just he in any other movie, he might be the main character, but he doesn't treat Milos 
like a foil. He doesn't treat him like a, a subordinate necessarily. He seems to kind of take him more under his wing. Mm, I think I think I, I like what you said where you described him as a mentor because I think that for me that's part of the subversive aspect of the film and I think of the of the way in which it was this very um, irreverent response, I think, to kind of traditional sort of communist narratives because I think, you know, the socialist realist narrative of the communist system, I mean, often has this narrative where you have a young character who becomes a hero and he's taken under the wing of an older male figure, usually a communist party member, and he sort of instructs him in the ways of communism. And in a way, sort of Hubitschka, I mean, is that figure because, I mean, he sort of, um, he, uh, you know, inducts Milos into the resistance and uh, teaches him things. But of course, he also teaches him, you know, sort of lascivious things as well. So I think he's a nice kind of uh, subversive um, sort of reimagining of that kind of socialist realist type mentor figure for me. And I love that they have that same body language that they have like after hubichka ends up getting some the station master is just so angry at him and he's looking at hubichka and he's out there and especially how he's like got his finger in his ear and he's rocking back on his heels and whistling and then we see that same thing doubled with milos after he and victoria finally get together and like we talked about before it's one of the few scenes where milos doesn't have the hat on and it's seemingly mm. free and relaxed absolutely yeah yeah another one of those beautiful motifs isn't it that's woven through really and yes yeah, took me a few viewings i think to really appreciate that and of course also that great article by um herbert eagle and then of course at the end in the very final scene in the hat it's kind of blown away it's blown it comes spinning back doesn't it to masha and i think that the uh, Again, the sort of the hat is off, isn't it? At that crucial moment of rebellion. Of climax. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it's so, I think another director would have made the hat blowing in the wind seem maybe more tragic, but it feels sort of triumphant. And Mm. it kind of gives, at least this is how I saw it this last time I watched it, the way that it sort of ends on that shot of Hubichka, it, it gives him sort of this kind of a, a little bit of a, I don't know, like a heroic glow. <laughs> I think we mentioned silent film comedy. And to me, I mean, I think that whole sort of play of hats and the use of hats, I think to me evokes, you know, Chaplin or Keaton or the Marx Brothers. And I think in a way, yes, I think the way that that's used at the end, I mean, I think is, is it, it, it's more in a sort of a comic tradition, isn't it? I think rather than, as you say, it's not something that's tragic. There is a sort of a, a, an upbeat aspect, I think, to that ending. And of course, you get the laughter as well, don't you, in that final scene? And that amazing amount of wind that came from that explosion. Which is funnier every time I watch it. The first time I saw it, it just struck me as being really kind of strange and surreal and a little bit i don't know like striking kind of an uncomfortable note but now that i've seen it probably four or five times it's just funny (laughs) yes (laughs) i I wonder how that went over at the time because it's it's a little bit of a (laughs) a ridiculous thing for a bomb of that size (laughs) to have this like nuclear blast level of (laughs) 
of wind. Well, I have to imagine that they're blowing up a shitload of armaments, but still, that it was that far away, and it, uh, yeah, it is like a nuclear blast when it happens. I can only assume that it is the strength of Milos's climax that that makes it that big. <laughs> I mean, you would have to, you would hope so. After all it's right. gone through. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you were to describe this movie, to, to, to describe the the center part of this movie to somebody who's never seen it before, they might think that this is a really depressing movie. Because if we go into the whole idea of Milos is this young virgin, he wants to lose his virginity, he gets together with Basha, who's the love of his life at this time, they try to have sex, he prematurely ejaculates, then he goes to, what is it, a, like basically a brothel and commits suicide. I mean, that that's a pretty depressing story, especially in the middle of, as we've been talking about this, a pretty ribald comedy. But yet it plays that it doesn't it plays part of it for laughs but it plays it seriously as well and i think that shifting of tone is something that menzel really did a great job of because this could have turned very dark very quickly anytime you say that nazis are involved in a film or our characters or something set during the nazi occupation everyone sort of wrings their hands and pictures schindler's list which is a constant frustration for me. So I love that a film like this, it it includes them, but doesn't focus on them. And the scene where he actually is forced to get on a train by those, by those SS guards, like you said, it could turn really, really dark, but it's still turned into this wonderfully balanced <laughs> and very funny in terms of the physical comedy moment that, in a way kind of just ramps up the tension towards the conclusion. Like, I don't know how he does it, but it's, it's so funny. Yes. I, I think it's really interesting that, uh, yes, I think there, that, that, uh, as you say, I mean, there is this contrast between, you know, just reading about the themes of the movie and actually watching it, because as you say, I mean, I think, it's as though there is a darker movie in there somehow, and it could have gone. It could have gone in that direction. And I mean, I believe that the original story, that uh, which was the first sort of draft in a way of what became the novella, I mean, is a lot darker, and that's all about suicide and death more than sex, really. And um, and I think the novella too is darker. I mean, there's a lot more sort of imagery in the novella of kind of um, animal abuse. There's a lot of images of kind of animals in cattle trucks and things like that with all the kind of, you know, Holocaust um, symbolism. And I think from what I've read about Menzel's approach to adapting the novel, I mean, he was really concerned to try and get that balance of sort of the comic and the tragic or the sort of, you know, the, 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 the humorous aspects and the, you know, the sort of historical backdrop. And I think, yeah, obviously he, he succeeded, I think, in doing that. And uh, I mean, I would say it's kind of also, it's an organic fit, isn't it? Because I think it is that humor. It is that sense of kind of vivacity and of life. I think that is, you know, that is, that is the resistance. That is the thing that makes these Czech characters, um, the station characters, it makes them different. This is the thing that is subversive to this kind of totalitarian ideology, which is all about, you know, rejecting pleasure. And um, to me, it's kind of an organic fit somehow, as much as the film is about these contrasts. I think it also feels, it feels natural too, I think. 
And every character has, I mean, aside from those few Nazis and Zednicek, every character has that sort of, like you were saying, that vivacity. And I mean, even one of my favorite scenes, when uh, Masha takes him to her uncle's <laughs> the set with all the models, yes. none of the models really speak. They're all just so warm and funny, and they have this kind of invisible depth that you would never see in characters like that in a Hollywood film. I mean, usually if models are in a particular scene or there's a photographer shooting actresses, they're just sort of meant to be eye candy. But here he uses them to just make the scene so much funnier and warmer. Yes. Uh, I think that scene could easily have come across as very creepy, couldn't it? I think without that sense of, you say, as you say, of, of life, I think in the in the models, I think it could have, yes, I think it, it could have been done in a way that was quite unpleasant. I think with this kind of groping sort of uncle figure, but yes, I think it, it takes on a different, yeah, it takes on a different dimension. Yeah, they smack his hand away and, and treat him like he's absurd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I love that there's an echo, too, uh, between this scene and the opening, uh, because... What he's doing, and he's he's shooting people by this fake prop airplane that, uh, and putting models in front of it, and I think behind it at one point. And we have not necessarily the same model airplane, but a very similar thing in that opening montage with uh, Milos's uncle. At one point, we see him in a really similar photograph. So it's nice that the two kind of tie together. I don't know if that was intentional, but I imagine that. And, and that's actually Trabal as well with the, with the uncle in the photo. It's something that took me a few viewings to notice that, but yeah, see two guys and the guy on the right is actually Trabal. And I think he's holding a bottle of rum or something. So it's his kind of uh, little signature in there. <laughs> And of course, there's also a cameo by Menzel himself as uh, Dr. Brabetz. And I think this is also, for me, one of the uh, another scene that I think I couldn't imagine in, say, a British film. I think, uh, as, despite the mention of football, I still couldn't imagine this in a, in a British film. And I think I would also link that scene to the scene with the priest as well, which is, I think, another very odd scene. And to me, I mean, these are qualities that I think feel... I don't know, these scenes to me feel quite modern, really. They feel quite contemporary to the time it was made. I can't really imagine a priest talking about psychoanalysis in the 30s. I don't know. It, it, it seems um, 
to me that I mean I think again this comes back to the idea that the film was a commentary on it was made to me you also have those scenes where the um, station master is really berating you know the fact that I mean people don't believe in anything anymore people just behave you know like animals and you could almost see it as a film about the kind of sexual revolution as well and about the you know the permissive society yeah that that scene with the priest blows my mind every time I watch it I mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to imagine in a British or American film a scene where a character walks up to a priest in the open, in a public place, and says, hey, I tried to kill myself because I'm trying to lose my virginity to someone I'm not married to, and they're, I prematurely ejaculated, but, you know, what can I do? And he's like, come on down. I'm sure there will be some generous, there will be some generous woman in the church who can help you out. Uh, like what? <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, I reviewed this film, and I made a very offhanded remark where I said that you know you could easily call this uh, the last Czechoslovakian virgin. And really, there there are moments in this film when it comes to some of the the pathos and stuff that that uh, treading that line of the really sad and the comedy that actually do remind me of the last American Virgin and its source material, lemon popsicle that, that it's not, you know, just bawdy for the sake of being bawdy. It's not American pie, you know, and the, the scenes of sincerity don't feel, they don't ring false. It really manages to blend that stuff together. And I don't know if that's just something that we kind of missed uh, a lot of times in American films, because when we think of teen sex comedies, we think of something completely different, but you could say that there's a, a real level in this film of sex comedy, which is amazing to me. Sex comedy with Nazis. It usually doesn't happen. Yes, I guess if it had been made in Britain, it would be like Confessions of a Signal Man or something like that. Yeah, and as you say, yes, you don't uh, you don't associate that sort of level of emotional depth, do you, and poignance? I think with with that kind of that kind of film. And as you, and yeah, as you say, I mean, narratively, I mean, it could have gone in that direction because yes, it's all about you know trying to lose your virginity and about sort of, you know, experienced older women and all the tropes are there, really, and yet it manages to tread that line very carefully. And it manages to avoid that sort of trope of a lot of British, American, and also Italian sex comedies where there are these scenes of people kind of, one person is chasing another person and somebody's trying to avoid someone, and there's this just the sense that we've talked about a little bit of kind of shame and embarrassment that's totally absent here i mean Mm. not not to bring it back to the models too much but the fact that when masha takes milos into this into this dark room and tries to seduce him and all of the the uncle (laughs) her uncle who's a photographer and all these models are crammed up against this door trying to listen to them have sex and are giggling and are just having the (laughs) best time it's just there's no sense of they shouldn't be doing this. I mean, he's the only one who's embarrassed, and it's because mm. it's his first time, and he doesn't know what he's doing. It's just it's yes. so delightful. <laughs> yes, he's not embarrassed that somebody sees him. I mean, and if he if he was able to sort of succeed, I mean, he, he wouldn't be embarrassed. As you say, it's just the embarrassment that comes from failure. It's not the embarrassment of being sort of caught at it. And, yeah, I think that's what's really 
refreshing and unusual, isn't it? And, and the, the fact that, I mean, Milos, I mean, he is this quite sort of shy, quite retiring figure, and yet he obviously feels comfortable to kind of talk to, you know, all and sundry about, you know, his problem. And uh, as you say, there's no, there's no sense of, there's no sense of condemnation. And I think apart from Zednicek, who, I mean, even he, I think, reacts quite mildly considering that he's a Nazi. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, he basically just, is a bit shocked, isn't he, really, when Milos asks him. But uh, I think what's what's interesting, I was watching it again, and what occurred to me was that, you know, you get these monologues by um, Lansky, the station master, you know, where he's saying, you know, there's no authority anymore. You know, there's no, there's no sort of, you know, control over people. And you're thinking, well, hang on, this is a country under Nazi occupation. And yet still there is this sense of, you know, people just living their lives quite freely and without that sense of shame or of repression. Yeah, and I think that whole angle, it kind of makes me think about how, like, yes, the film is about him trying to lose his virginity, but I think this this whole concept of having sex and developing a sexual identity is tied into learning how to become a man. And it seems like the film is sort of giving him two options is that he can be more like Vichka or he can be more like Zednicek. And, you know, obviously we know which one he chooses, but it seems like it's sort of connected back to the themes that we've been talking about, about power and control and the proper ways to do things and masculine identity and all of that. And in such a subtle way. Mm. Yeah, that's very true, I think, because there is the scene where Zednicek's giving his lecture on military strategy. And then at one point, Milos is the one, you know, who asks why, you know, he asks that cheeky question. And actually, Zednicek is quite happy that he's asked it because it's almost as though he could be the one taking Milos under his wing. He has this chance now to explain, you know, this grand mission of Nazism. And it's almost as though, yes, as you say, it could have gone in that direction. And he could have been the the sort of the mentor figure, which is I guess he wants to be, but but doesn't be, doesn't become. Yeah, and I think that scene in the office where Milos comes in and is sent back out and comes in again, he kind of gives him a chance to be a mentor. He sort of approaches him with this innocence and says, I have this problem, can you give me a solution? And he doesn't, or I think his solution is he wants him to just focus on his work, but then it gets too, too, gets too real. So he sends him away. It's interesting. I never even thought about it until right now. We were talking about objects before, and I just realized that these two mentor possibilities, Hubitschka and Zednicek, they're both the characters that wear glasses. I know that um, uh, hers hers might also when he's the doctor, but these two characters in particular, and then trying to think about you know scenes of looking there's that really kind of odd happenstance of the plasterer who manages to see uh milos after he's tried to commit suicide in one of the most gruesome ways by the way the scene of him kind of putting his wrist down on that blade always makes me wince that is just incredibly visceral to me but there's that weird that plasterer who's working up there and I don't know why he's working at that particular place that particular day, but the way he breaks through the wall and sees Milos in the tub, and then they manage to kind of reenact the Pieta with uh, him carrying Milos out of the building. I'd never noticed the glasses, but that that whole voyeurism 
it, it doesn't seem to be about sexual voyeurism, but about about this kind of observing the way that someone behaves, if that makes sense. And Hubichka has that weird habit, too, where he'll reach under his glasses and rub his eyes, which I just every time he does that, I'm just like, is that is there supposed to be something more to that? Probably not. I'm probably just reading way too much into it. But that's kind of my job. But I'd never thought about that. But I think, yes, there is something in there. Quits, closely observed trains or closely watched trains. So it's all about watching, isn't it? So, yeah, I think there's a. There is something there, yes. And I mean, I'm thinking also of the scene where I guess this is sexual, but there's a scene in the uh, in the train, isn't there, with the nurses and the German soldiers and Milos sort of get, goes in to sort of take a peek at what's going on and then they send him out, don't they? And <laughs> be so, his, Him rubbing his eyes must be something because the scene with him rubbing his ear that's repeated two or three times and then is later repeated by Milos is obviously done on purpose. So. The eye rub has got to not be you reading too much into it. But I also really like to read a lot into everything. So I mentioned earlier that whole idea of the mother disappearing after she crowns Milos with the hat. And I love that that's echoed later on when the older guy from the station is kind of running down the tracks and he's just like, basically, the SS are coming. They're, they're riding this train along. And Milos is just... You know, he doesn't really react a lot of times. He's just so nonplussed and he's still standing there kind of looking for the train. And then they do that amazing cut and the Nazis are behind him. And I just love the way that the mother disappears in the one scene and then the Nazis reappear or appear in another scene. And just the comic timing of that, again, always makes me laugh because it just is so unexpected that they're just standing there behind him with these machine guns. It makes me jump every time I see it, even though I know it's coming. It's like, I'm not sure why, but that also reminds me of the scene you just brought up with the train car full of Nazis and, and the nurses. I felt like maybe I was missing a scene or missing part of a scene, but it seems like that all those people just appear out of nowhere. Like they're just suddenly in the train yard. So I think he does that a few times all to great effect. Yes, I think you have the, the soldiers, don't you, coming back from the Eastern Front. And as you say, they're just kind of introduced without any explanation. And uh, I mean, to me, again, I think this comes back to surrealism, I suppose, this idea of, you know, just sudden apparitions. And um, you just get this sense of the senselessness of war, don't you? And I think the sense of, you know, I mean, it's like the scene in the uh, the uncle's studio, you know, when the place just blows up and you get the sense of, I think, the way that life is absurd in this in this context, you know, things can just quickly disappear and reappear, I guess, maybe, if you're lucky. <laughs> and the hat rack still stands. I love that. <laughs> but I also think that's why that scene where the Nazis suddenly appear behind him is so menacing, because even especially the first time you see the film, but almost every time it there's this feeling like like you're saying, in this absurdist world, anything could happen. So mm. movie could easily have ended with him being, you know, forced into this cattle car and murdered and nobody knows what happened to him. And that scene, I think, is one, you know, aside from the fact that the Nazis make me jump, <laughs> is, <laughs> is one that is maybe the most upsetting or most jarring in the film because you do actually see dead bodies. And even though I think certainly 
you know, in 2017, having seen a lot of Holocaust-themed films, I think when people think a World War II film, an image that does come to mind is dead people in a cattle car or on some sort of train. So it's not, at least now to us, not a surprising visual, but one that I think is really impactful here because there's just not a lot of death and violence literally shown in the film. It's just suggested. Yes. And I always forget why they let him go. And it isn't until I go back and I reread people's notes and I go, oh, yeah, they saw the scars on his wrists. Because I'm always, when I watch the movie, I'm just like, why are they letting him go again? Oh, wait, yeah, that's why. Because for some reason, I always miss that detail. It makes no sense to me, though. I Like, I don't understand. Do, do they just think he's inept and therefore he, he he's crazy and he can leave? Yeah, so or whether it's just that sense of a, it's just a common humanity of just a common experience of suffering and they take pity on him. But I, I agree that it's it's mysterious. I think it's mysterious. Yes, I think that uh, one of those details that I think he doesn't really go out of his way to explain. And I think that whole sequence is so I think there is something mysterious and beautiful about that sequence when you see the, you know, the countryside. And again, I mean, it's not immediately clear. I mean, why is he showing that? I mean, it's this, as you say, I mean, it's the one of the darkest scenes in the movie and you get this quite lyrical sequence, don't you? I mean, is it that there's a sense of, you know, his life kind of flashing past his eyes? Is it a sense of, you know, the world that he will lose if he dies? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, quite a kind of striking sequence, I think. It doesn't really, it, it, it's one of those sequences that, I mean, for me too, it always, I always, when I start watching the movie, I always forget that it's there. It just kind of takes me by surprise every time. Like in a film that we know is set in this sort of more rural village, you don't actually see nature very much except for in that, that one scene. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes, the station's very much a kind of hermetic world unto its own, isn't it, really? Uh, that's true. I think you don't get much of it. I think it's only in the early, I think in the first sort of uh, first scene, really, where you see Milos walking through the street, that you actually see something kind of outside the station. You don't get a lot of... Um, you don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of exteriors actually, do you? Apart from the platform of the station. No, which it really it made me think a lot about I think Slovakian film, which also has a similarly confusing title: the shop on the main street or the shop on the high street, depending on which version of English you're using. <laughs> but it's that one is so different because it's all about the exteriors of this. It's a similar sort of town, but it's like shot in a completely opposite way. Instead of being in this sort of contained, these contained indoor spaces, you see the whole town in almost every shot of the film. And I don't know why that was what popped in my mind, but it's just such a different feel. Yeah, definitely, definitely a point of, um, a good point of comparison, I think, though. it's a, Yes, it's, it's a long time since I've seen the shop on the high street, actually, but I, I would be interested in, yes, instead of contrasting it more with this and then, I think that, I mean, here, to me, I would connect that sense of interiority, I think, with the 
I guess with the sense, you know, that, I mean, with it, you have a kind of world within a world almost, don't you? You know, you do have the, you know, this context of nation. And I mean, Menzel, you know, is aware of that. I mean, he, he you know, gives you strong, um, you know, there's references to that. I mean, it's not that he's ignoring it, but at the same time, I mean, you do get this sense of characters who still, you know, they're living their lives, they're enjoying themselves and they're able somehow to, you know, to carry on. And it's, it's almost like that pleasure, that kind of enjoyment of life is a kind of resistance in itself. And I think it's, it's interesting from a sort of power world war two films usually presented perspective, because I think if you read accounts of the occupation, for most people, life did go on. I mean, certainly when you read the French accounts of how people dealt with the collaborationist government and how they dealt with the actual years of occupying Nazis wandering around. But I think a lot of the films take this more stereotypical approach where it makes it seem like life has stopped. But that's one of the things I love so much about Closely Watched Trains is he shows you both. He shows you that this horrible thing can be happening, but people are still who they are. They still have these base desires and still have to live day-to-day lives. Two, you were talking about the lack of exteriors. I think that really kind of plays into the way that Menzel is shooting this, is this very episodic thing that we can jump into the scene with the soldiers coming back from the front and the nurses. We can jump into the scene of the uncle and the photography studio. And we don't necessarily always get those establishing shots, which also kind of keeps us on our toes a little bit. The way, you know, I was talking earlier about the way that we are going from the, the station master's wife killing the rabbit to the old man holding the rabbit. And there's no real connection between those two scenes. It's just like it pops from one shot to the next shot and it kind of has that disjointed time to it. And I think that that is setting us up for the way that the rest of the story is going to be told because we don't have establishing shots when we go into some place. It's just not like we're going to go and now we're outside and now we're inside and now we follow this character in from out and he closes the door. There's even though we did talk about that interior exterior, I think the whole thing of him coming in the the door the wrong way is all shot from inside. It's very much inside, and we don't get those establishing shots too much, which I, which I think really services the story very well. Yes, and I, I think that uh, I think that comes back again to surrealism, and I think to Harabal. I, I think it's interesting that I mean, much as Menzel, I mean, he did. I think one of the things he he. I think his first kind of decisive, you know, uh, idea with adapting it was that he would make it simpler. I mean, the novel, the, the novella, I mean, is is completely non-linear. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, which is very much Rabel's approach. You know, you have this impression of apparent kind of chaos, although it's not really chaos, but it feels like that. And Menzel wanted to, you know, discipline the story and make it more linear. And yet I still think that, it's not that linear. I mean, there still is this sort of offhandedness to it. And I mean, one of the things, one of the principles that Rabal, I guess, was working with was collage. And I think to me, that might be one way of describing the approach here, that there is a sort of collage-like quality. And, you know, in that opening scene, you get, you know, literal collage, you get sort of montage of images of the ancestors. And again, it's kind of non-linear, isn't it? It just sort of zips back and forth from, you know, from one 
relative to another. And then you get also this sort of the opening credit sequence, which is a sort of a montage of, you know, you get photographs and you get sort of moving imagery. And uh, yeah, I think um, I think it, it, it's it's I guess it's more conventional than the novella, but still it's not it's not by any means, I think, a very sort of linear narrative which I think is one of the things that makes it so kind of, like you were saying earlier, Mike, it's sort of hard to boil down to one sentence and really give somebody an idea of what they are getting themselves into. But I think it's also what makes it so whimsical, <laughs> despite the subject matter. Closely Watched Trains does such a good job of being disarming that I can see why it won the Academy Award in, what, 68, I think it was. I can see why this film became more widely known in the U.S. and in the U.K., because it's very disarming. You know, all of these things that we've talked about as far as it being charming, about it being funny, and it manages to really kind of come in and do these things while telling this larger story which ostensibly is about the Nazi occupation, but is really about the, the communist occupation. And it is so well done that it just can kind of sneak up on you like that. And can you can not read anything into it. You can just watch it as this kind of you know sex farce. But it does such a great job of kind of giving you that message all the while. Anytime you get lulled into thinking that, okay, maybe this is just going to be a comedy, it's like you said, just disarming in the opposite way where it mixes in so many dark scenes and unexpectedly dark scenes that are wonderful. Definitely agree. I think with both those points really. And I, 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 again, I completely understand why it was, I think in a way, the signature film of the Czechoslovak new wave. Uh, I mean, I think even if I were to compare it, say with Milos Forman's early films, I mean, I think those films, I mean, they're doing a similar kind of thing because I mean, Milos Forman, I mean, he's also interested in this sort of everydayness and in this sort of like this this sort of lower tier level of characters and, you know, people who are concerned with their sort of sexual pursuits and so on. But there's a sort of a hardness, I think, to Foreman. There's a sort of an abrasiveness to his view of the world and of his characters. And I think Menzel softens that, really. I think there's a sort of a softness, I mean, both literally and figuratively about the way he sees the world there's a sort of a charm to it i think and yeah as and yeah as as sam says i mean i think that uh, every time you know you sort of feel yourself getting lulled into that it does do something you know to remind you you know where you are there's also a kind of a uh, there's a wryness to it i think i mean i think i find this in menzel cinema in general i think that uh, i think he's very good at doing that and i think that uh, he does it i think equally strikingly in um Skylarks on a String, which is about the, um, I mean, it's directly about the, the, the communist experience and it's about the labor camps of the 50s. And um, again, I think he's able to kind of maintain that balance between, you know, a world of people who you would actually quite like to sort of spend some time with and, and you know, in a way to create this quite inviting sort of environment and yet to remind you also of this sort of bleak historical reality that somehow surrounds it. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with film historian Peter Hames, the author of Czech and Slovak Cinema, Theme and Tradition. And the second is with the director of Closely Watched Trains, Mr. Yuri Menzel. And we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages. 
Do you ever wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? Do you ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock! And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd Podcast, where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV, movies, and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd! Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show. So you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday.
closely watched Trains made an international splash, and I'm very curious why that film, of all films from the Czech New Wave, managed to kind of make it out and really make it to Western audiences. Uh, apart from its um, obvious audience appeal, I would say that the, the ground had already been prepared because uh, the shop on Main Street had already won the Oscar a couple of years before. So people were sort of uh, aware of Czech cinema. And also, Foreman's uh, Loves of a Blonde uh, had been shortlisted for an Oscar as well. Uh, the previous year. So there was a, a, a sense that people knew about Czech cinema at the time. So I think that's a, a kind of context, just in the same way that people now know about Romanian cinema. Um, people are sort of primed to receive films from a particular area. But of course, uh, I think uh, Closely Watched Trains has uh, uh, enormous audience appeal anyway. And it could well have made it even without that kind of background uh, because of the um, the appeal of the, well, the central character, the boy who is um, uh, searching to lose his virginity, is kind of a, a universal subject and, uh, and the uh, leading actor uh, is very sympathetic. So I, I think there are a lot of reasons why audiences would have uh, identified with it. Going back a few years, what were kind of the events that helped lead to the Czech New Wave? So many people talk about the French New Wave, Italian Neorealismo, but the Czech New Wave, not so many people point to that and say, oh yeah, well, this was happening and this was happening and now we have Czech New Wave. Obviously, it came after the French New Wave. So, uh, Normally, people date it from about 1963 when uh, three films were released. That was uh, Milos Forman's uh, Black Peter, uh, He Delivers Something Different, and uh, Yaramil Yeresh's The Cry. Uh, those three films were said to be these, uh, the kind of starting point in the sense that they were beginning to look at the, the real world in an unconventional way. You could say that's the starting point, but uh, obviously... The beginnings go go deeper than that, but this was a new generation. Uh, well, except that Foreman wasn't really new because uh, he graduated in the mid fifties, but he'd worked his way through and it did made his debut in the early sixties. But essentially, this, this was a a new wave of directors that uh, emerged in sixty three. They were obviously there were some influences coming from the French New Wave. I mean, they were aware of Truffaut, Godard. They were also aware of Antonioni, uh, Rene, Fellini, and so on. Um, all these filmmakers were familiar to them because uh, even if the films weren't released in Czechoslovakia, uh, the students got a chance to see them when they were brought over for vetting, as it were. There was an inter sort of interrelationship, I would say, with what was going on in the rest of Europe. But at the same time, they were uh, making their own observations on contemporary society uh, and breaking with their own traditions. What was the political climate in '63 to kind of allow for this to happen? People uh, refer to the '60s as the the golden '60s. It was the time when the uh, regime was still authoritarian, but was beginning to lose its grip, as it were. And I think the uh, the Czech New Wave can be seen part 
as part of the reform movement that began in the 60s and finally led to the Prague Spring in 68, which was an attempt to, as they put it, square the circle, uh, to de- democratize the communist system. And there were a number of people working, you know, with it, within the communist party and also outside the communist party to try and reform the system. So the, there was a sense, I think, that there was just a little bit of give. Um, and of course, some things happened by accident, you know, that um, people didn't really know that they were going to produce films which were going to be uh, critical or subversive. Uh, they often presented themselves in other ways. You know, uh, if, if you approve a script, um, then you're not necessarily approving what, you know, you, you don't really know what the final film's going to look like. So uh, a number of films, I think, uh, got the green light on the assumption that the subjects were okay, but then the subjects turned out to be rather critical. Can you tell me what role uh, Borom and Hrabel played in the the Czech New Wave? He's rather significant. Uh, obviously, he is not a filmmaker, but um, his novels became, or and stories became popular in the sixties. So much so that in 1965, the um, uh, filmmakers gathered together to make a film called Pearls of the Deep, in which. Uh, no less than seven of his stories were filmed. So it was a kind of, almost, people say, uh, um, the nearest thing that the Czech New Wave got to a manifesto because you had all of the, all, you, you had most of the directors involved. You had, uh, if I can recall, all, all seven of them, Menzel, Nemitz, Yerish, Hitilava, Sean, uh, Hertz, and Passer all made uh, episodes for that film. Uh, five of them were put together and released as a feature. Two of them were released independently. But uh, it was, at, I think, at that stage that Menzel, the director of Closely Watched Trains, actually began his first collaboration with, with Rabal, which then led to a, a whole slew of films, really, because not only did he make closely observed um, or closely watched trains, sorry, I lapsed into English there, uh, in 66, but went on to make Skylarks on a String in 69, Cutting It Short in 1980, Snowdrop Festival in 1983, and finally after Rabal's death in, uh, well, whenever Rabal died, I've forgotten the date now, but he he made, uh, adapted his film, The I served the King of England in uh, 2005. So he worked very consistently with Rabal during that period. And I think the, the main influence of Rabal there was that Rabal collaborated with Menzel, but didn't really collaborate with any of the other directors. Rabal's influence was really because his work emphasized the everyday episodes from everyday life, what he called pearls from the deep or pearls from the bottom, things he heard in pubs, stories, but also, you know, this was intermingled with humor, elements of surrealism and so on. Uh, so it completely broke with the socialist realist stereotypes of sort of ideal heroes and ideal heroines and building the great uh, the great future. Can you talk a little bit about how surrealism played a role in these films? Well, I don't think surrealism, uh, as it were, officially played a role in these films because the surrealist group was basically underground until the uh, until the late sixties. 
So there weren't any overt surrealist films appearing. And, uh, of course, Jan Schwenkmeyer, the, the one director fully associated with surrealism, was, as, as he put it, a, a surrealist avant la lettre. <laughs> Before, before he knew it, as it were. But I think surrealism is certainly uh, an element which seems to be present in uh, Czech culture. Uh, Yeresh, who made Valerie into a week of wonders, once said it was both the style and the substance of surrealism were present within the culture. But I don't think people were trying to be surrealists so much as trying to uh, present other realities, uh, to present uh, the world of uh, dream, perhaps, in, in certain of the films. I have a kind of a silly question as far as uh, closely watched trains. Our main character, uh, Milos, at the beginning, he says that, you know, my name is Milos Herma, and people laugh at my name. Are they laughing at his are they actually laughing at his name? Is there something funny about his name, or is it just the family name has been tainted because of all of these kind of scoff laws that uh, work there that that are part of his family? Well, uh, according to some sources, the, the main means Mons Veneris, and they're therefore funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are various other funny names in the films as well, but uh, uh, somebody once said that um, a lot of Czech names are, are actually based on uh, on, on jokes. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I think that's uh, they are actually I think laughing at his name because it has associations which are amusing. <laughs> Obviously, read the book of closely watched trains. Do you remember how it might differ from the film? It differs quite quite a bit, I think. Well, originally, Rabel wrote a, a story called The Legend of Cain in 1949, which was very far from being a comedy. In fact, he was preoccupied with it, with the subject of suicide. That was a source of Closely Observed Trains, which was published as a short novel in 1965. And uh, he said that in the novel, he was weaving together a what he called a braid of humor, cruelty, and tragedy. So the novel is a little bit more cruel than the film. For instance, it includes scenes where the hero sits down on a dead horse, and the hero's final sexual triumph is accompanied by the firebombing of Dresden in the distance. Well, none of that's in the film. So a lot of the sort of uh, edge or cruelty has been taken out of it, uh, and it's been made much more acceptable and uh, uh, sympathetic. Hrabel's work is often quite abrasive, and Menzel's work is really quite audience-friendly. So I think you get a meeting of the two in the collaboration between Menzel and Hrabel. Talked about Menzel directing one of the segments of Pearls of the Deep, and then between that and closely watched trains he did uh crime in the girls school it's it's quite an interesting film it's it's, it's based on it's three stories um adapted from uh, Josef Skoretsky's uh stories about a Czech detective called Lieutenant Borovka. quite a number of them have been translated into english actually so they're basically these sort of detective stories and Menzel's crime in the girls school the, the crime in the girls school is 
basically set in a girls' school. It's rather like a, I mean, it's many years since I've seen it, but it recalls from it's rather like a kind of St. Trinian's episode, I would say. Lots of um, sort of slightly overgrown girls dressed in black stockings and so forth uh, come to mind. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's quite fun, but it's been large. But it, it, it's a kind of a very light film, and uh, I don't think the other episodes are as interesting as Menzel's. Menzel's, I think, is the best. So that makes Closely Watched Trains his first feature film, and I'm yeah. curious what kind of things did he do in that that would then carry through for the rest of his career. Well, one of the things would be to try to appeal to an audience. I guess he's always been a great. Uh, supporter of his uh, his teacher, Ottokar Vavra, uh, in terms of actually making films uh, structured in such a way as, to, in other words, a slightly conventional structure. So I should say he, he conventionalizes um, Rabel's work to a degree, but Rabel's work is so unconventional that the result still turns out to be quite different. It's not, you don't get an orthodox film as a result of that. I believe in... Working on uh, closely watched trains, Ravel said that uh, he had to write, rewrite the script about six times in order to meet Menzel's requirements for a properly structured story. But at the same time, he said that he and Menzel were constantly exchanging ideas while the film was being made. So that it was a sort of two-way process going on. So uh, I think Menzel, sort of, if, if you like, uh, uh, makes the films accessible uh, with material which is really quite original. Here's another silly question. Why do we have such a divide over the title of the film? You know, the British people call it closely observed trains. Americans call it closely watched trains. Was it just <laughs> that there wasn't uh, the Internet at the time to kind of bring us together faster? I don't know. Um I mean, it means the same thing, really. Uh, you know, uh, the closely watched trains were, I think, if I recall, were a category of train which uh, the Germans were keeping an eye on during the occupation. So that's why they're closely watched or closely observed. I remember the English translation of the novel, which I can't remember when it was published now, I think fairly early on, was actually called A Close Watch on the Trains. <laughs> so the three, three versions of the title there. I found an old study guide about it, and it was uh, Trains Under Keen Observance. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's... Uh... <laughs> It's all the same. They're just variations in translation, I think. It's just the way they were translated at the time. Tell me, how did you get interested in film? It was a big surprise for me because... It was not my wish. It happened because I would like to do to do theater. I like theater all my life. Is my theater is for my uh, for my for my no business for my life. Yes, but I was not accepted in the theater school for a lack of talent. They said me, and in this time I started television, and I decided that uh, television is not. Uh, for television is not uh, have a talent, and I uh, I tried to go in the film film and television school, 
And I have checked because my teacher, uh, one of the best Czech uh, director, Otakar Vavra, he, he taught me to make film. I make study for film, uh, film, film history, how to do it, film. And he was a very good teacher. And finally, I was surprised I can participate on one, one uh, film, uh, omnibus film, with many of my colleagues. And I did uh, a short story in a film. In, and uh, thanks to this short story, I, I get a proposition to do Close the Watch Trains. And, and I, I also, I, I was, uh, it was a chance because I like this author, Morgan Harabal, but uh, this, this book was not published. It was in manuscript. I have not opportunity to read it. But if they ask me to do it, I say, yes, I will do. And before I read it, and when I read it, I find this is not very, very uh, easy. But I, I with, together with the writer, Mr. Harabal, I, I made a script, and finally we can do it film. Later, I, 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 there should be the three uh, filmmakers before me uh, didn't accept this, this, this book because it was not very, it was, uh, they find that it's not easy. Or this is, they find it how to do it. And uh, I have chance. That, that's, thanks to them, I, 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 I stayed to do it uh, film. And uh, before, uh, be, be, besides, of course, I do also theater. And I said, I said, uh, film is my wife, and uh, TV and uh, theater is my uh, mistress, my uh, girlfriend. It's good because I'm not, uh, uh, I, I, I'm not ambitious for film. You know, it's my job. It's my, it's my work, and I have, I have uh, free hands. You know. And free, free, free head. I'm lucky man. That's all. What was it like working with uh, Hrabal? It was fabulous because Hrabal is very nice man. He is not intellectual. He's very educated, but he, he uh, lives like the uh, normal people. He has no. He's very simple, you know, and thanks to him, I, I decide uh, what is the life. How is alive? Because his life was very, very difficult, or not very, not, not very easy. He, he started many, many professions uh, because uh, because uh, their start was not very easy. And thanks to uh, a communist era, he he must change many different, many different uh, professions. And as a writer and a poet, he can be uh, adapted. Uh, Accepted by by communist regime because his uh, literature was uh, very far from o- o- official literature. Yes, at first in the sixties, when the communist regime was uh, more and more weak, when he has practically he was uh, fifty years no forty forty eight. Uh, he he can publish first his uh, short stories and. Later books uh, are as different as the other writer, and from my point of view, he is uh, bigger than the other Czech writers. That's all. 
you know what is for, for me a big big uh, influence or a big happiness in a place in one uh, one line uh, words you can smile you can laughing and cry together his point of view is very plastic you know, he, he, he observed the people from all sides uh, this observed the story uh, the the human being, uh, like the brutal, human, brutal uh, animals, are also very lovely animals. In one person, you know, he's very rich. He was very rich. It was, and I, I, I have a chance to, to work with him. So, closely watched trains was such a hit. Uh, at least I know it uh, played so many different places. Was nominated for an Academy Award. Yes. What does that yes. do for you as far as putting pressure on you for the next film? <laughs> you know, in this time, it was uh, uh, community era, we didn't know too much about the uh, Oscar. Uh, United States was uh, very far from us. And uh, when uh, they sent me, you have to go to uh, United States for uh, for nomination. For me, it was more important to visit the United States. Oscar was, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, 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 I don't know what 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 present is, you know. Uh, of course, uh, young Kada before me, he got Oscar. However, uh, it happened like the other prizes for other festivals also. And uh, I have no disambitions. I have, I'm lucky, you know, because in this time, it's many other good movies. But uh, I have I have chance because the Italian producer Monty he bought this film and tried to uh, uh, sell in the United States and it was a it was a good 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 a good way good way to go in United States uh, in the same time. Was not not very much uh, good uh, European movies or uh, foreign movies, and uh, uh, Ponty had a big influence in the United States, and he, he I, I have chance to go in a domination, uh, yes. and <laughs> and the film was very popular in this time, and uh, I I I get I guess this golden uh, golden golden figure. But next film, I did a, a commercial movie, comedy. No, no art. <laughs> I'm an artist. They asked me to, to, to propose me to stay in, in Hollywood and to, to work in film. But I said um, it was possible because I'm just uh, two, three days before the first, uh, first shooting day. And I, I prepared another, another film. And I have to do something in uh, home in Czechoslovakia. And later, uh, the Russian come in uh, uh, in August '68. I have uh, with my second film in the United States uh, in, in New York a festival. And the people from uh, from Universal, I don't know which study, say, yes, yes, you can stay here because. Uh, uh, something we have no reason to to stay in uh, in, uh, in the Russian army in, in, in Czechoslovakia, but 
I I I I I I said later, please later, because I have to do another movie. I did uh, uh, Lars on the String, and when I finished Lars on the String, uh, <laughs> I I lost my passport, and uh, the, the the border was closed for me. Yeah, that's all. But uh, I I think I. It was clever for me to stay here because uh, very few European uh, uh, filmmakers has a chance to work in uh, Hollywood. Only Milos Forman or this Polish uh, Polanski, but for the other, the French and Russian or many other uh, uh, directors try to do it, but America, uh, their culture is very far and uh, very different. I think uh, I am not very clever, but to stay in my home, it was clear. Can you tell me more about Larks on a String being um, banned by the government? <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm lucky, man, because when the Russia come, it was not easy to change everything, you know? Many, many people, uh, uh, also the, 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 the directors of the film industry, Accepted the new uh, anti-communism regime. Uh, the, 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 the new, the, no, not anti-communism, but more free, free uh, as the uh, as the Russian uh, Russian uh, government uh, wish. And more people was uh, um, happy, but tried to do it something better as as communism, as uh, another another state, not not so close like the. Communist, communist uh, uh, era, communist. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. They said uh, communist with a human face was, uh, and uh, of course, at the Russia crowd, the uh, they have the influence to change any religion, uh, uh, politics, uh, minister, uh, directors of uh, yeah, change, and use the people. Uh, which was uh, which went to work in the Russia and uh, make his career thanks to the Russian army, but it was not overnight. And the new regime in film came in the summer '69, uh, and uh, my film was finished, finished and uh, and and banned, immediately banned. Not not only by many other film was banned. Uh, because it was too free, or the writer was emigrated, or the actors emigrated, and this, it was many films, not only films, but books, that many artistic things was banned. And I have few years without work, and also not, uh, it, it's very, uh, you know, it's impossible, but maybe not so easy to understand. But one side, one side was uh, rules, and other side was what is uh, possible without rules. And without rules, I, I, it's forbidden. It's, uh, I have not myself, but many other people that have uh, they was not working with the commercial was no band, no, no, it was no work. But officially, is no reason to uh, uh, give me uh, out of of, uh, of uh, film. I was paid from studio regularly, not too much, but 
I decided I, I cannot work. It was, a, it was a, of course, for me, because I was uh, not married, I have no family, it was easy because small, small money is enough. But for other me, my colleagues, which was, it was uh, many actors, many family actors, many painters, many writers, also Mr. Hammer was banned, was not possible to, to work. And it, it was a few years, then communist uh, regime was more and more weak, like before, until the, until the moment, uh, 89, yes. It was a slowly, the regime was uh, destroyed, or, uh, more and more weak. It was uh, three or four years, not, all, not only myself, but many of my, my, my colleagues, can start to work again in them. But for me, it, 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 it is not, probably not good, but for me, it was a vacation, vacation. Before Lark's on a String, had you experienced much censorship of your work? Censorship officially doesn't exist. But maybe it's very difficult to understand for you, but uh, since, since uh, 48, uh, was very easy what is possible and what is not. You know, because with, with somebody will do, uh, with, as a writer or a, uh, or a theater, somebody is made something different as this official line. Uh, the, the director of theater or chef the uh, uh, chef the uh, uh, books uh, uh, from, from writer or director of film, any uh, levels uh, was carefully what is possible and was not. If somebody less uh, uh, something more uh, more interesting or uh, so forth, uh, he he lost his his work. He lost his position, which means everywhere was the people very carefully and try slowly step by step to to do think more and more free, but. The other side, the regime was uh, very strictly, time to time less strictly, because the, the old Bolshevik was more for uh, weak, uh, old, and changed than, than the younger. And it was developing slowly for certain uh, relative free regime in the 60s. Not exactly. Uh, 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 100% free, so not, not. But it was, uh, it, it was, other side was, was good because we have a limit. They say, no, uh, what we wish. You know, I, I think now, this is everything possible. Uh, you have no force. You have no, uh, you have no enemies. You know, uh, your, your force is to make, to fighting for the enemies. That is for me problem, yes. <laughs> Do you think that closely watched trains could have been made post-69? Uh, in the 70s, certainly not. Uh, in the 80s, maybe, but certainly not now. Because it's very, a very different uh, uh, sense for, for, for art. And uh, film, and not only film, was more and more... Uh, the, uh, Divide. Other side is uh, big, big art, very, very, very uh, ambitious art, only for 
few people. And other side uh, is uh, to, to make sketch, uh, the simple movies, but not only film. In, in literature, in the, uh, everywhere is now is a big space for for uh, uh, stupid stupid things. And other side, what is uh, what is made for, for this is artistic ambition is very far from the human uh, regular viewer. You understand? It's not only film, it's from theater and literature and, you know, the, 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 uh, art divides. One side is high, high, uh, artist. Uh, other side is, uh, make money. And, uh, we have a chance in the 60s that we can do if, do film which is interesting for, for, uh, viewers. But also with uh, certain uh, contents. You worked very often with Vaclav Nekar. What is he like to work with? It's just very, very because in this time he he's not actor, you know. He's poaching. Until now, he made concert uh, pop. Uh, but uh, uh, when I was looking for actors. Somebody uh, watch him, uh, see him in TV as a young, uh, young uh, singer, pop pop singer, and uh, I met him. I I fall in love to him because he he's so so innocent. He's very innocent, you know, and it it wake up the uh, midnight. Uh, uh, he wake up the everybody must like him. It's, uh, this is uh, yes, and it, until now he's uh, like this. Is uh, like, of course, older, but uh, it was funny. In in uh, the thing, twenty twenty years after the uh, film was finished, he was invited to Berlin for festival, and uh, nobody try. No, nobody. All people think that film is. For today, not 20, 20 years old. But thanks, I was here with uh, uh, Václav Reskar, uh, uh, and in his face was, uh, you can observe this 20 years. What was that like to see Larks on a String finally show in 1990 after you weren't able to show it for so many years, for 20 years? The people was very well uh, accepted. In the big cinema in, in, in the center of Prague. But there was in the, in the kino, uh, six, maybe eight weeks. And just after this film came another film called Emanuela. It's a half porno, half porno. And this, this Emanuela uh, was on the screen three months. What happened by premiere in, in Prague in uh, January in uh, 69? I was, pres- I was, uh, before the screening, uh, I had an interview for TV and they asked me how I'm happened that uh, censorship doesn't exist. And I, I remember that <laughs> before I was in, in, uh, in Paris, and I observed a big uh, centrum in Champs-Élysées, many cinema uh, with cinema with a shit. 
uh, with this uh, bad bad movies for bad viewers. And I thought in this time, so I was stupid. I thought it was not acceptable for the Czech people because we have uh, we can watch Ferini, Bergman, and we like this this film, which was uh, ambitious but also good. And I cannot, I cannot imagine that film like can be accepted in 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 Czech culture. I thought that Czechs are more educated. So I was stupid because uh, I was very naive, yes. And, and until it's more and more deep or, and more, uh, it's, it's big pity. But censorship, my open view is, uh, open, uh, censorship has, uh, is not so stupid like, like communist, communist uh, 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 censorship. I thought that, uh, censorship is something but would help to direction. You need almost something to rebel against. Yes, it helps. Yeah. I know my my point of view is because if if you wish something to you you need enemies. You 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 need somebody who is going against you. Of all the movies that you've directed over the years, what has been your favorite one to do? Uh, my movies? I have no, no. Ask, ask, uh, mother, which, which child, uh, uh, I like more than the other child. <laughs> it's fin, I, I did it, I did it, it's finished, over, no more, uh, uh, I, I don't like to watch it, my, my movie. Because I'm, uh, I'm uh, probably, it, 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 I don't need it. Are you still acting today? Uh, I played uh, uh, in one Slovakian 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 very nice story very nice story and um, <laughs> it's my other other profession which I never wished to do it it's, it happened Mr. Menzel thank you so much for your time yeah thank you I see you yeah thank you yeah yeah thank you thank you Thank you. 
All right, we were back and we were talking about closely watched trains. And Jonathan, I really want to take a little bit of time here and talk to you about your work when it comes to Czechoslovakian cinema. You're the author of Avant Garde to New Wave, Czechoslovak Cinema, Surrealism, and the 60s, which is another what I would consider, and I'm not just trying to butter you up, but I would consider that an essential textbook for people to pick up if they're interested at all in Czech cinema. I want to know how you got into it. What what was your uh, impetus to start to watch these films and then study them and then end up writing about them? Well, basically, I think as these things often happen for me, I kind of had a lot of time on my hands. I was kind of between um, I, I'd finished a master's degree and I was sort of just just working and I was kind of drifting a bit, watching a lot of movies. And I got really interested in um I don't like to say East European cinema because Czech people I know will kill me if I say East, Eastern Europe, but I would say Eastern Central European cinema. I was really introduced to it when I saw um, a season of uh, Jerzy Skolimowski's early films in uh, in Leeds um, in Northern England. And um, I was really interested in, I think, that whole context of 60s new waves or new cinemas and uh i was i really got into the films of um dushan makaveyev and uh and the czechoslovak new wave as well i mean one of the most important films for me i think around this time was um as i think it was for for, for both of you and for many other people uh, was uh, valeria and a week of wonders which i mean was just such a spellbinding film and just so you know, just so unique for me. And that also led me sort of down the path into looking more at Czech surrealism. And so I was kind of interested in this sort of wider world of kind of East Central European new waves. And I I took this into, um, I I wanted to sort of take this into academic study. So I sort of uh, uh, mounted a proposal for um, uh, a doctoral thesis, uh, which was initially, I mean, crazily overambitious. I mean, I wanted basically to look at, you know, all these different countries of the Eastern Bloc and talk about, you know, representations of the body, representations of sexuality, um, how these were, you know, used as a sort of a subversive um, critique of the communist system. And uh, basically, at some point uh, after I'd started the uh, the thesis, I mean, sense prevailed and I, I sort of limited it I sort of um, narrowed it down really just to Czech cinema um, and I felt that the Czech new wave um, was some, something that I could write about within that sort of uh, within that sort of space of, of the thesis because it's a fairly compact period and uh, I didn't know Czech before I started um, before I started my research I basically sort of started learning Czech at the same time and um, this uh, thesis sort of became the book that I wrote um, and I sort of expanded um, I expanded uh, beyond just Czech cinema looked a bit at Slovak cinema as well when I turned it into a book uh, I guess yeah I'm, I'm just really fascinated by um, the sort of native avant-garde movements in both the Czech and Slovak context, which I think in themselves, I mean, are only now sort of getting 
the attention that they deserve. When I started really researching this area, I mean, it, there was so little uh, material available, I mean, either in terms of the actual films or critical material. And I'm really happy the way that that has grown. As I've, as I've been doing my research, I've seen more and more films be released and I've seen more and more, um, you know, sort of great researchers and um, uh, critics and, and bloggers and uh, um, uh, curators and, and people sort of, you know, devote themselves to this area. Um, I guess initially I was interested in, um, I guess, as, as I say, the avant-garde or the sort of modernist aspect to these cinemas. And I think there's something, I guess, very romantic about the idea of subversion, subverting the system, of this sort of internal critique. But I think over the years I've also got more interested in the sort of popular cinema traditions as well. And I think that um, what I've been trying to do, I guess, in some of my more recent work is to try and redress the balance a bit because I think I've looked a lot at new waves and um, I'm very interested now in people like Olgi Glipsky, you know, and the kind of comic tradition because I think that uh, in a way is easy to sort of cast as the sort of the villain um, of uh, Czechoslovak cinema because, I mean, these were uh, filmmakers who were working in the 70s in the sort of the, the period after the, the new wave and I think often have got kind of a bad name in, in sort of Czech and Slovak scholarship. But, uh, I mean, for me, this is also a very important tradition, I think. I think the films of people like Lipsky and Borley Czech, I mean, they're also incredibly imaginative and rich, even if these filmmakers did not see themselves as auteurs or as sort of, you know, revolutionary directors. I think there's also a very interesting um, sort of popular cinema tradition there as well. So, yes, I guess I've... Uh, yeah, continue to try and, I think, um, expand my own knowledge of this area, really. You don't know how happy it makes me to hear you say that you've been uh, looking at the works of Lipsky, because I love that guy. The last movie of this uh, series this month of September is going to be Happy End, and I'm... People know Lemonade Joe, but they don't know anything else it feels like. I know that there were some screenings of Adele Hasn't Had Her Supper Yet, or which goes by a ton of different titles. But some people have seen that one. I think it played in the UK on TV a couple times, or at least once in the 80s. But otherwise, people just don't know his work, and he's done so many great things. He's just hilarious, hilarious stuff. I love everything that he's done. I know... Uh, uh, you know, the, some people have managed to track down, you know, I killed Einstein gentlemen, but, you know, the straw hat and, and uh, man from another century. There's so many great things that he's done. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think uh, and again, I think it's something that I mean, much as we've talked about, I think the uniqueness of Menzel and of, and of closely observed trains and of the way that, you know, there are things there that you would never see in a British film. I think there's also that tradition of Czech comedy, which, I mean, somehow is able to you know, to mix broad comedy with a sense of the absurd, with avant-garde qualities in a way which feels completely natural. And um, these films are not exactly parodies. They're not exactly slapstick. They're something unique, I think. There is this unique comic tradition, I think, in, in Czech cinema. And if I could give a little plug for um, something that I've been working on recently, I, I actually... Um, contributed a chapter on Adela hasn't had a supper yet to um, Czech cinema revisited. And this was a collection 
that was accompanying a uh, uh, the restoration of a series of Czech films by the National Film Archive. So I believe that this is. I've not actually seen a copy of this book yet, but I believe it's it's uh, it's just been it's just been published. So uh, yes, if if anybody's interested in uh, in uh, Lipsky's films, I do have a, a chapter in that book. I'm definitely interested. Yeah, I me have too. To pick that up. Sam, I'm curious about your history with the Czech New Wave. What kind of stuff got you into it? I think I mentioned that Valerie was the first film I saw, and I was just so surprised by it. I mean, I kind of got my at least some of my interest in surrealist films from an early interest in surrealist art, so it wasn't totally from out of left field for me, but like I think the way it had been described to me was that it was a film about vampires preying on a young girl. And if that's all you hear and then you go see it, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously not quite that. But so after I saw that, I knew that I had to see more. And since I've been working on this book on World War II films, it's sort of given me a built-in reason to seek out more Czech and Slovak films that I otherwise probably wouldn't see, like things that are more dramas or not, don't specifically have kind of a cult cinema vibe. And so I've been really grateful for that. I'm, I'm still, I feel like there, it will never, it will be never ending. Like there will always be more things that I have to see. I have to tell you, Jonathan, that you got a name check when we did Valerie in our week of wonders because uh, Kevin Heffernan, uh, referred to your book specifically, and especially because you actually used the the bishop as you <laughs> cover there. So, yeah, great stuff. He was, uh, and then I've gone back and was uh, checking out for this episode, of course, for Case for a Rookie Hangman, for The Cremator. So there are so many great movies that you talk about in the book that it's just, uh, like I said, it's something that if people are interested in Czech New Wave, they really need to pick up. Yeah, there's not that many books on it really and uh yes i i uh i i i i guess part of what i love about research is really just that chance to introduce things really to people i think just to be able to kind of you know signpost you know great films that people might not have heard about and uh yes i think um and it's great i think to to be part of this you know i think this context um of uh you know i think the fellow researchers fellow critics and i feel that there's kind of a i feel there's when i started i mean it felt very much you know kind of like a lonely field really and uh, i remember you know i would tell people what i was working on and they would just look at me with well you know do they do they really make films in you know they would also say you know czechoslovakia you know they wouldn't sort of get that well you know it's doesn't really exist now there's czech republic and slovakia and people would say you know what are you what are you working on and i think now i mean i feel that within you know i guess the sort of 10 years or so or more than that since i started um i think with the growth of dvd with the growth and blu-ray and the growth of i think um um i think within initiatives you know like um companies like second run for instance in the uk and i, I think with uh, you know there's been some great um you know things in the US too I think there's it feels like there is a kind of a community now around this kind of cinema really and you know I think people like Joseph Gervasi who I think holds a lot of uh, sadly I've never had the sort of opportunity to uh, visit uh, you know his his uh, 
uh, you know, the, 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 it's uh, uh, the screenings that he does. But, uh, you know, I think there's some great sort of work going on and, you know, sort of showcasing these films. And I do feel part of something now, which I didn't really when I started. It's funny that you brought him up because I actually so he for anybody who doesn't know who he is, he was involved with the Valerie release and I think wrote an essay for it and is sort of a local programmer here in Philly. And he I don't I don't remember him doing this as a series, but he randomly did this screening in this very strange bar in center Philadelphia that looks like a Greek temple from the outside. It, it makes no sense. I think maybe it used to be a bank, but wow. it's, it's full of mostly like college age kids or people who are trying to get really drunk. And so one night he screened the cremator in there. And that was the first time I saw it. This must've been like 10 years ago. And most of the bar's clientele was so confused, <laughs> <laughs> just like projected it on the wall. And right. But yes, the next time he does that, you'll have to come visit us. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Yes, I, I uh, I'm, I'm I'm used to being amongst sort of confused people, so I think that's uh, yeah. That I, often I'm the sort of you know because of what I'm showing them that uh, yes, I've had this experience with students, and yeah, I, I confusion works for me. I think I'm always happy to be there to sort of elucidate <laughs> or happy to, in my case, enable me to spend lots of money that I probably shouldn't be spending on to track down some of these Czech movies that you mentioned in your book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that, um, I, I mean, in a way, I mean, that, that I can't be, uh, you know, I can't be too, um, unhappy because I mean, there are so many films that have been released that, you know, I never, that, that, I mean, when I started, I mean, were completely obscure. So, I mean, you know, things like, um, you know, Jakobisko's great film, Birds, Orphans and Fools, I mean, he's now on, you know, second run and you've got this amazing, you know, Baron Munchausen release recently. And um, at the same time, though, there's just so much that's out there still. And um, I mean, I'm at the moment researching uh, the films of Zbigniew Brinik um, as part of a, another um, essay that I'm doing. And um, he's, you know, somebody who I think is more or less forgotten, really. I mean, people, I guess, if they know him, they know him for The Fifth Horseman is Fear. But even that doesn't really have a, a current release. And I mean, I think he's somebody who's just slipped through the cracks, really, possibly because he was a bit older than the new wave generation. And uh, there's also people like Stefan Uher in Slovakia, who made some really wonderful films in the 60s and, uh, again, was a little bit older. So I think that, yeah, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of people that need to be rediscovered, I think. I'm excited to read your Brinnick essay, so you'll have to let us know when it comes out. Yeah, definitely. He also did uh, Transport from Paradise, right? Actually, yes, to be fair, that one is, that one is, uh, that has quite a good, yeah, good second run release yeah <laughs> but the one i'd really like to see is um the one about hitler that he did called um jasper edelnasser i justice because that is just mad i need to see that oh you were talking about that yeah on facebook I yeah, remember it's that. Very, i mean i wouldn't say it's as successful as um transport from paradise or the fifth horseman is fear but it's just really weird yeah it's just um mix of i guess sort of sci-fi spe- speculative fiction with i guess moral drama there's even a bit of sort of bit of new wave aesthetics in there as well but um 
almost reminds me of an episode of The Prisoner in some ways. It's just very strange and has a, has has a pretty good Hitler, I think. I think Fritz Dietz was the actor who I'm oh. guessing was actually German. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, not a bad Hitler in that. And, uh, yeah, it's just a very strange mixture of, of tones, really. Yeah, very strange film. I've been dying to track that down for my World War II book, so I definitely will have to get on that. Most of it is in German, as I remember. So I think if you speak oh, German, yeah. it might be okay. Yeah. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. Checktember continues next week with a discussion of a case for a rookie hangman. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Jonathan. Sam, how is the hardest working woman in Philadelphia these days? Busy as ever. Uh, I think I mentioned last time I was on the Jean Roland book I edited is now out. It's called Lost Girls. And I am now hard at work at a book on Fritz Lang's film M, which should be out sometime next year. That's great. That's pretty awesome. Jonathan, you mentioned one thing that you've got coming out. Can you kind of plug that again and let us know what else you've got happening? The essay on Brinick is for uh, what will be um, a really exciting collection, um, which uh, I wish that I had thought of myself. And this is going to be about um, 
exploitation cinema and Eastern Europe. So I guess the question the collection will be exploring is whether there was exploitation cinema, whether we can talk about the existence of exploitation cinema in East or Central European cinema. And so what I'm looking at specifically is um, I'm using Brinick as a kind of case study for talking about the involvement of Carlo Ponti and of Italian distribution in Czechoslovak cinema and the way that Ponti basically added sex scenes or he added sort of more commercial elements to try and sell the films internationally. And uh, so, yes, I'm going to be... Um, going to be looking at that really in my uh, essay on Brinick uh, and I'm also um, putting the final touches now to an essay on um, Czech uh, new wave cinema and pop music because I think there's an important connection that's never really been looked at between sort of pop singers and the, what was happening in the world of pop music in the 60s and the new wave uh, in fact Václav Netskash in Closely Observed Trains was um, was one of the most popular Czech pop singers. So yes, I think uh, I'll certainly be looking at him in that essay. Well, you mentioned Carlo Ponti, and he was the executive producer of Closely Watched Trains, and I'm sure he probably had something to do with some of the just bizarre marketing of that film, like looking at the American poster, uh, where it's like the uh, Milos down on the bed and the woman over him and the close-up of uh, him kissing this woman. And I think it's Masha um, who's up front and says, all it takes to make a man out of a boy is a woman. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is not curious orange here. This In fact, is really I think I, I'm sure I've read somewhere that the, I think the in, in, initial title when it was shown in America was a difficult love. I, I'm sure I've heard that somewhere that it wasn't closely observed trains or closely watched trains that it was initially titled a difficult love. So, uh, Yes, I think uh, I'm sure that Ponti was, yes, involved in that. I think that attempt to sort of, and I know that in Italy, and I think Michael Brook has mentioned this, and I, I can't remember the name it had in Italy, but I think in Italy it was just very overtly presented as a sex comedy. God, I can't imagine thinking you're going into a sex comedy and seeing this World War II movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hey, I laugh every time. It is hilarious. It, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> well thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode you can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.